0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 14th, um, a Tuesday, and the headlines are all about inflation. Uh, The stocks, Wall Street stocks apparently are stabilizing. I'm not sure how long that will last ahead of the Fed's upcoming meeting on how how, how much um, interest rates are going to be raised. Uh, we're all wondering why gas prices are so high, dramatic rise in gas and many other prices. Um, uh, it's harder and harder to understand what the Fed is going to do and whether uh, it's, uh, its lifting of rates is really going to have an impact. We're also beginning to think historically. Martin Wolf of the FT, who has been on this show a couple of times before, um, is trying to learn what we should and shouldn't do from the 1970s. Uh, he fears a return to the 70s, although the great debate is how we are different today in the 2020s than we were in the 1970s. Uh, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times um uh, three days ago an op-ed uh, on thing finger pointing in inflation uh who to blame that's something that everyone's in the business of doing uh, and the op-ed writer who has been on my show before is once again on it he is blaming and, and and my guest is christopher leonard who is also the author of lords of easy money uh he's blaming the the federal reserve and and he has an interesting narrative on it um and uh, chris is joining us from kansas city today chris your finger pointing at the feds it's what journalists do best
1: yes i am i am assigning blame to the federal reserve and you know i i think it's important i actually think it's quite important for people to understand the background of how we got to where we are today and why the Fed is so uh, important to the story and why they're responsible for a lot of the economic wreckage we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, and and, and this is really derived in many ways from your best-selling books, an excellent book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. You pretty much go back to 2010 or 20. 2008 and 2009 what happened then which in your view is such a major mistake
1: yes that that was a turning point in monetary policy history 2010 and and what i'm really trying to say in that piece this weekend is that you know right now in june 2022 we're seeing incredible not just volatility in the markets but a real downward correction the the stock markets are down 20 percent, and i think it's really the beginning of a story of a lot of tumult that's ahead. And to understand why this is happening right now, it is important to go back to 2010, because that's when our central bank, the Federal Reserve, charted a new course, really did begin a set of experiments and unprecedented programs in an effort to drive economic growth. And and just to put it simply, The last decade from 2010 to 2020 was a decade of super easy money, incredibly low interest rates. Interest rates held intentionally at 0% for roughly a decade with one minor interregnum. While at the same time interest rates were at zero, the Fed was printing trillions of dollars and sending it directly into the banking system. And all of this had the effect of of reshaping Wall Street, reshaping the financial markets in a way that was dependent on this easy money. And now inflation is forcing the Fed to take the easy money away, to tighten. And and that's why we're seeing really the earthquake that we're seeing right now in the markets.
0: Chris, it always seemed to me as a non-economist that inflation didn't happen earlier, given that the Fed started printing money in 2010. Why has it taken 12 years for this inc- inflationary crisis? I mean, it's always understood, at least in economics at 101, that if you print money, you create inflation.
1: That's exactly right. And, and it's so interesting. It's one of the things I talk about in the book. One of the great mysteries of the 2010s is, is why we never saw price inflation. Uh, I'll tell you one institution that was taken completely off guard by the lack of price inflation was the Federal Reserve itself. As they were pumping this money into Wall Street through quantitative easing, and I'm talking trillions of dollars here, the Fed kept expecting inflation to rise, and, and they kept being thwarted in those expectations. We just didn't see price inflation. You ask why, why didn't we see that? The honest answer is we really don't know yet. You know, there was a, a day-long conference held at the prestigious Brookings Institution, which not coincidentally employs a lot of former Federal Reserve officials like the former chairman Ben Bernanke. They held a whole day-long seminar as to why we didn't see inflation. And and as I put it, the answer was who knows? Uh one key factor does seem to be that we've created these global supply chains that had a large deflationary effect. OK, stuff was just getting cheaper and cheaper every year as it was being produced in lower wage countries. And and that was happening at the same time we were printing all this money. The reason why I'm bringing that up is it it does seem that the interruption of those supply chains after COVID played a big role in driving up inflation. But it's going to take us a while to figure out exactly why we're seeing the extremely high price inflation that we're seeing now when we didn't see it uh, 10 years ago as, as the Fed was printing all this money
0: uh, be, be, um, I was going to call you Ben that would have been yep. a Freudian era Ben Bernanke <laughs> is your nemesis he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve between 2006 and 16 he also has a recent uh, op-ed in The Times about inflation isn't going back to the 1970s he trusts the Fed of course he would given a He's the former chairman. If we had Bernanke on the show, and perhaps we'll get him on in a future show, it'd be actually really interesting to have both of you on at the same time. He would say, well, look, in tw- I'm guessing at least, he would say, well, in 2010, things weren't normal. The, the whole system was about to collapse. If-, if they hadn't poured all this money into the system, all the banks would have gone under. Ha- ha- two questions on that, uh, Chris. Firstly, you think that's what he would say and secondly would he be right
1: well he is gosh of course i, I need to hasten to say i i don't consider him my nemesis uh, you know this book
0: intellectually is a, if not you know, personally
1: exactly and i and i own it this book is extremely critical of the bernanke chairmanship uh, uh i started the book with a great deal of sympathy toward Ben Bernanke. I wouldn't want to be Fed Chair during the crash of 2008, 2009. Uh, the Fed acted in the emergency conditions of 08 and 09 in a way that did stave off an even worse financial collapse. But in the course of reporting this book, I think that Ben Bernanke took huge risks, had a short-term horizon, didn't shoot straight with the American people about what they were doing, and has created massive problems that we are confronting today. So I think you summarized Bernanke's point well, is that the Fed was facing these terrible conditions and really had to do something. I mean, the the title of his memoir is The Courage to Act, and, and I think that's how he portrays what he did. This book, Lords of Easy Money, starts late 2010. The economy was in the American economy was in a rotten state at that point. It was in this hangover from the crash. Unemployment was still north of 9%. But we were not in a recession in late 2010 when Bernanke started this experiment in quantitative easing. Quantitative easing was something new for the Fed, it was basically a jobs program. It was Bernanke saying, okay, Congress isn't really acting. Congress is dysfunctional. We are gonna step into the breach and we are gonna to try to drive forward economic growth. That is very different from saying, we're gonna bail out banks in the middle of a five alarm
0: fire. But isn't now, that just to sort of it's trying to give it a political spin? Yeah. The politics of the New Deal in a different guise.
1: Absolutely not, could not be further from it. This is so important to understand quantitative easing, what the Fed did is not the New Deal. It's not even Keynesian economics. It's fascinating. I'm so glad you brought that up. Look at what we did after the crash of 1929. The New Deal structurally reformed the entire banking system. It broke up the big banks. It it created new regulatory institutions. And then critically, the New Deal went out there and put money in people's hands. It hired people to go dig ditches, build dams, even write stories. That is entirely different from what the Fed did, which was to print money inside the bank accounts of twenty four institutions on Wall Street called primary dealers. The Fed was just printing money
0: on Wall Street. That is very different from putting money in the pockets of millions of of so so in an American odd way and you and I have talked about this before last time you were on the show, actually. yeah quantitative easing is 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 a new deal for the banking community. Is that fair?
1: Yes, it's and and we saw it repeated again in the Covid crash of 2020. And as I put it, you know, the system to bail out banks and asset holders is a super well-maintained, efficient bullet train of a system. Yes, it is the new deal for JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. I think that is a great way to put it and it works very well. We did not break up the big banks or restructure the banks after 08, 09. We simply recapitalized them and then flooded money into the system starting in 2010. Look, the results have been deleterious to the American economy. It has widened income inequality. It has increased the levels of debt. It has increased risky debt. And and it has created this fragile financial system that we're seeing today And, and all for the benefit of not creating that many jobs.
0: So so this in your view, at least quantitative easing is the reason why the wealthy have done so well in the last 12 years. They benefited in the covid years. Um, they, they profited from quantitative easing much more than what I, what we might call the middle class, although that barely exists anymore. Is that I, fact, Chris?
1: hundred percent fair, and, and I would humbly submit it. It's not some kind of opinion. It's just a mathematical fact. Let's just break the world into two groups of people, people who own assets like stocks, bonds and real estate, and then people who earn the most uh, most of their living through a paycheck, what we would call wage earners. Quantitative easing by its nature, according to the Federal Reserve itself, was going to work By boosting asset prices, you flood that money into Wall Street. The money goes and chases assets and it drives up the prices. Ben Bernanke and his team were hoping that by driving up asset prices, they would create the so-called wealth effect. They'd make people feel like their 401Ks are fat. They'd go out and spend more money. But break it down. Who owns assets in the United States? The top 10% of the wealthiest people own 65% of the assets. The top 1% own 40% of the assets. You look at the bottom half of Americans, they own about 7% of the assets. So a program like what the Fed was doing to pump up asset prices, by definition, benefits the much smaller group of people who own assets. And it absolutely widened
0: wealth inequality in America. Do you think that one of the political consequences of QE was the rise of Trump? the increasing strength of populism, particularly right wing populism, but also left wing populism.
1: Yes, Trump is the phenomenon with a thousand parents, if you will. There's so much that is going into what's happening in America today and and why we saw the rise of a a demagogic right wing populist like Trump. What the Fed did exacerbated the underlying trends that led to trump the decade that i really wanted to focus on was 2010 to 2020 wages were effectively flat economic growth was weak and productivity growth was weak during that decade the american wage earner is not a happy flush group of people right now the fed helped double the value of the stock market it nearly doubled the size of the corporate debt market. Those markets hit records. It was hypercharging the financial system. Yes, that contributes to the, uh, the, the feeling that the system is rigged and benefits a small group of people, which Trump's so capitalized on, the frustration of wage earners and, and the, the malaise, the, the, the sort of sideways drift of, of most people economically in America.
0: I'm curious, I had Stephanie Kelton on the show. I know you're very familiar with Modern Monetary Theory, her book, The Deficit Myth, seems to play into QE. What's your take on modern monetary theory, the idea of this people's economy that government can keep on printing? I mean, I'm not sure she's a big fan of Bernanke either, but I'm assuming that you're not a big fan of modern monetary theory.
1: Okay. So so first of all, like like full disclosure, the book I wrote doesn't really address modern monetary theory head on because I'm looking at what the Fed did over the last decade. You know who made the decisions, what those decisions ultimately did to our economy. Modern monetary theory really started to gain traction uh, and and become broadly known toward the end of that decade, Uh, you know, 2018, 2019. And I would argue that the theory never would have really gained traction if you hadn't have had this radical action by the Fed to dramatically increase the amount of what we call base money in the economy, to subsidize uh, deficit spending by keeping interest rates low. And so modern monetary theory is a relatively, I think it's fair to say, I think even Dr. Kelton would say it's, a, it's kind of a new school of economic thought. And and so what I'm trying to document is sort of the underlying uh, policy, not the theory.
0: What about the international dimensions of this, Chris? Um, Earlier today, I interviewed Oliver Bullough. Um, He's an important financial journalist. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He has a new book out, Butler to the World, How Britain Helps the World's Worst People Launder Money, Commit Crimes and Get Away with Anything. He's an expert on the sort of kleptocratic international system. And actually, at the end of our interview, he strongly recommended your work. Is there a connection between QE and the rise of this global kleptocracy, particularly uh, the central role of, of Russia? And might we even link the war in Ukraine to one of the consequences of this broad QE phenomenon?
1: Okay. You know, what I would say is that QE affected the entire global financial system in in different ways. You know, the effects it was having on Wall Street, it did have internationally. And a, a lot of the effect that QE had, again, was creating this pool of money looking for a place to invest and then pushing that money into ever riskier assets. And those assets like documentedly included debt from developing nations, dollar denominated debt and even sovereign debt around the world. Turkey uh, Argentina, Mexico, uh, and 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 Russia, so it 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 pumped up debt levels in the developing world in a way that is going to certainly be destabilizing in the coming year, as the central bank in America, as the Fed tightens. When I say tighten, I mean hike interest rates and pull back quantitative easing. That is going to be the thing that Warren Buffett talks about when the tide comes in and you know all the weak structures are exposed that will happen now i am not ready to say that you, that you can you can draw a straight line between the, the 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 tidal wave of easy money and and what vladimir putin decided to do with ukraine which seemed to have other more immediate roots than 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 monetary policy if, if that makes sense
0: yeah i mean i uh... I think it might be a stretch, even for critics of Bernanke like you, to, to blame uh, Ukraine on that. What, what about uh, this return to the 70s? We did a show with the political economist Helen Thompson. It was an excellent show on the risk return to the 1970s. This was before the current inflationary crisis. She has a new book out, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Uh, your friend Bernanke, as I said, had an op-ed in The Times a couple of days ago, suggesting that we're not going back to the 70s. What's your reading, Chris, on this? Are we going back? Is this completely different? What can we learn from the 70s about avoiding the, the, the political and economic hard times of, 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 of 50 years ago?
1: Here's an immediate analogy. Um I I, I looked at the 70s. I think it's very important to look at the 70s. It's a very instructive time. The the super high inflation, we wouldn't call it hyperinflation, but the extraordinarily high double-digit inflation of the late 70s had its root in the 1960s. And this is according to the Federal Reserve's own study, a 2004 study I cite in the book that the Federal Reserve did that that couples with other histories of the era that show it was monetary policy in the 60s that led to the inflation of in the 70s. It was the fact that the Fed, um, you know, the Fed itself called it monetary policy neglect. They kept keeping interest rates relatively low as they responded to short-term problems. And that created this sort of undercurrent that led to the tidal wave of the inflation in the 1970s. To me, the immediate analogy that's very, very worrisome is that during the 2010s, we saw a similar thing happen. The Fed kept money extraordinarily easy with zero percent interest rates and quantitative easing. Every time the Fed started to try to pull back or tighten, the markets would react and the Fed would stop. It's documented. It's well known that the Powell pivot, so to speak, in 2019, when current Fed Chairman Jay Powell decided to stop tightening. I, I think this, you know, the analogy people use is this created the the tinder in the floor of the forest that is creating such a danger r- right now.
0: In, in and, the sense- and, the, and the politics are odd in the sense that the 70s created the conditions for Thatcher and Reagan and ne- neoliberalism. But it's hard to imagine that this current crisis will 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 trigger a new um fetish with free markets and neoliberalism
1: well i i i think that's exactly right and have you had on your show yet the guy gary gersel yeah i had the- gary
0: on we have everyone jim
1: you uh, have everyone
0: jim. you have everyone <laughs> yeah no i'm teasing you he, he was very good and he talked about the rise and fall of neoliberalism and i think he's absolutely right the real question is what comes next and that's what everyone's scratching their head over in polit- how this is going to manifest itself in political terms in the sense that in many people's minds this can be blamed not on the not on state regulation but on too free a market right well exactly and and i think
1: Gersel has nailed it. I I think that we've had a political order from 1980 to 2020. It's over. Uh, We don't know what's coming next. In in terms of how people respond and react to a downturn right now, that that is an open question. I just want to say, as a reporter, I want to give people a book that, that helps explain what's happening. We are going to you know, we're seeing a bear market right now. Stocks are down 20 percent. Um, I sincerely believe, as I said the other day, we're in the third inning of this process with the Fed tightening and then the the, the carry on knock on effects that it'll have in the economy. We are in the third inning of this. And, and I just want people to understand how we got here, which is that the Fed created a world oriented around a zero percent interest rate for roughly a decade. And to change that, when the Fed hikes rates again, it's going to reorder things and it's going to happen in a messy way. So let's just understand why we're having this, uh, you know, financial market volatility and downturn right now. Uh, Political conventional wisdom says they'll punish the Democrats for it uh, come the fall. And I'm trying to say the roots of this problem trace back years. But, you know, your question of of what what comes next what is on the other side of this Uh, i have no idea i have no idea i'm out there trying to report right now and trying to assess these different schools of thought it's really
0: interesting and i think it also reflects the intellectual bankruptcy of the current political system new york times reports that the white house and joe biden doesn't seem capable of dealing with much. He, he, he talks about inflation as the problem from hell. In other words, they have no idea how to deal with it. The Republicans, or at least the non-Trump Republicans, have gone back to their traditional playbook of combating inflation with tax and trade policies. Again, they're kind of clueless. What it seems to me is is if, if this crisis isn't tamed in the next two years, and as you suggest, it probably won't be, we're, we're lucky if we're in the third inning it could easily result in the rise of a third party candidate with a very different read on traditional Democratic and Republican uh, takes on inflation. Is that fair?
1: Well, it's fair. And, you know, as we talk it through, I I think that's a best case scenario. Um, If if we had a, a Democratic movement where we came up with a workable theory that people could get behind as to, you know, how to create broadly shared prosperity in America. That's what the Gersel book is all about. We had this understanding that was entrenched politically called the New Deal order, you know, from 1930 to 1975-ish. And then we had one under Reagan of neoliberalism. The idea that we'd have a have a new order, and again, I want to stress, like democratically pushed, that would probably be the ideal scenario that that we could have on on the other side of this. But Gary Gary doesn't seem to, you
0: know, Gary's a hard carrying leftist. I mean, he's on the progr- very much on the progressive side of the of the Democratic Party. But he doesn't believe we can really go back to the New Deal. I mean, there are people who argue that. The only way to really tame inflation is to go back to the old progressive playbook of taxing the wealthy. But that probably won't work as the new republic is taking that position. Uh, I mean, what, do you, what is your sense, um, Chris, on the best policy to address this stuff? I mean, given, well, you, you're, you know, you have, you've taken the relatively long view. OK, t- 2010 happened. OK, we can blame Bernanke, but we can't turn the clock back. We have to deal with the current game. We have to deal with the current realities.
1: Yes. When you look at the 70s and and I'm not like a monetary hawk, hard money type person at all. But when you look at the 70s, they tried everything to hold down inflation, stuff we would never consider today. Price controls, wage controls, all these actions of government, nothing tackled the problem until the Fed tightened the money supply. And unfortunately, the Fed did it in a very fast and drastic way, doubling, more than doubling the interest rate, tanking the economy, creating a brutal downturn. Some people say we've never really recovered from the recession of the early 80s. So, uh, you know, I, I guess you're asking me what, what policies uh, would be best. I think it's kind of unavoidable that monetary policy is going to play a key role in taming inflation. We can run around doing all this other stuff on the fiscal side, and it can bring down prices in different areas over the long term. You know, For example, I'm a big proponent of antitrust regulation and breaking up monopolies, but that kind of policy takes time to, to, to be in, enacted and, and to have an effect. Uh, it, the Fed is going to have to tighten, I think, unless we want to allow inflation to really become embedded and to take control. And then, in terms of what America's new political order would look like, you know i've I've made no bones about the fact that I'm a pretty i, I you know I think the new deal worked uh uh it 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 had its seeds of its own destruction inside of it there were th- there were weaknesses in it. but when you look at a period of um uh, shared prosperity in America, it's hard to beat that period from nineteen forty to nineteen seventy 1970 or
0: nineteen seventy. I mean, there's a longer conversation there, Chris, with Second World War, all sorts of other variables that we can't get into. Your, your your excellent op-ed in The Times talks about how quantitative easing compounded our need for risk. It's an interesting take. And it certainly makes sense in terms of the headlines today about Coinbase now, one of the crypto exchange exchange platforms. They've announced today that They're laying off 20% of the people that that work for them. Some of these crypto platforms uh, have completely collapsed, like Celsius, which seem like scams. Do you think that a lot of the the so-called new economy, crypto, Web3, is is this all just going to go away? This is all the froth created by QE that will seem like the dot-com boom of the late 90s?
1: Um, I don't know what will go away and what will endure in terms of some of this new technology. I think it's very safe to say that the prices will correct dramatically downward to reflect the underlying value of, of the assets. Let you highlighted that paragraph. Let me please explain something that I think is very important.
0: Okay, and let me read it for people not watching. Okay. All of this easy money has a distinct impact on our financial system. It, inve- it incentivized investors to push their money into ever riskier bets, which I think is self-evident given what's happening today.
1: Yes, this is all in the documentation, The the debates they had inside the Fed and how it works think of the financial market as being like a teeter-totter or a seesaw. On one side you've got safe investments, on the other side you've got risky investments. When interest rates are at 4 or 5%, the safest investment in the whole wide world is a United States Treasury bill. And so, you know, if I'm a big hedge fund and and if I can earn 4% by stashing my money over on that safe side of the teeter-totter in a Treasury bill, I'm going to do it. What the Federal Reserve did over the last decade was it intentionally moved all the money from the safe side of the seesaw to the risky side. And and it did that by driving down the interest rates paid on safe, long term treasury debt. The one thing I watch all the time is the interest rate on a 10 year treasury bill. Just think of it as what you can get paid saving money on Wall Street. So what the Fed patiently did for a decade, was moved all the money from the safe side to the risky side. Well, now the teeter-totter is shifting, okay? The the interest rate on a 10-year treasury bill has gone from effectively zero in 2020 to about 1% at, at Christmas of this year, to north of 3%. That means the money can start shifting back over to the safe side of the teeter-totter. And so all these things that make sense in a 0% world, cryptocurrency, Tesla stock, uh, super high value Facebook stock, commercial backed real estate. You get your money out of that stuff in a 3% interest rate world. That's the readjustment that we're going to be seeing. So yes, the Fed incentivized risky investment for a decade. And now that incentive is going go to go way- go away as interest rates rise.
0: But we did get Tesla. I mean, I do not think very highly of Elon Musk. I'm sure you don't. But he is a genius in his own way. And Tesla, I think, represents progress as an electronic, as, a, as an EV revolution um, innovation. So if, if we go back to a, a, um, a more conservative economy, Chris, where's the innovation going to come?
1: Oh, my gosh. That is such a great question. Thank you so much. You've got two things. You've got the actual car, the Tesla, and then the charging station, and then the infrastructure to support it. That, that's real, super important innovation. I mean, my goodness, that's, that's the key of the entire American economic system. Innovation, productivity, creating new products. You've got that, but then you've got Tesla's stock. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people pouring their money into purchasing Tesla stock to make the asset price go up, and then when it goes up, people see it's going up, and they put more money in it, which makes it go up, and they see it's going up, so they put more money in it. Those are asset bubbles. Tesla's stock price, many people would argue, made well. Its market's proving it now. the 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 price made no sense. It needs to correct back downward. That's the asset price. The underlying value is the product and the innovation. And you know, I at this point sincerely believe. That the Fed's pro- the the Fed's policy of quantitative easing and zero percent interest rate did not stimulate or stoke innovation. It stoked f- financial speculation, stock buybacks, stock purchases, and asset price increases. That's and, not and, and sort of manias
0: about. like uh, Coinbase and uh, um, and uh, Celsius and these other. Uh, 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 the, these other initiatives often seem like scams or Ponzi schemes.
1: And I profile in the book the story of a company which called Rexnord. It's this old school industrialized company in Milwaukee. Interestingly, Jay Powell, the current chair, Fed chair, fed uh, I'm sorry, Fed chair, bought and sold this firm when he was in the corporate debt world at, at Carlisle Group. Know. What you see is over the decade, a 0% interest in quantitative easing. It didn't, it, it didn't incentivize this company, Rexnord, to innovate, to build a new factory, to invent a new product. It just stoked these financial transactions like mergers and stock buybacks and borrowing and corporate debt and issuing corporate debt to securitize and resell. That's what gets encouraged by 0% interest rate and quantitative easing.
0: And finally, Chris, if uh, if Jay Powell's watching, I'm sure he's got not much else to do. One piece of advice from uh, Christopher Lennon to Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed.
1: Okay, this is going to sound incredibly cliched and just lame. Uh, Shoot straight with people. Um, I think that there's been a terrible tendency on behalf of the leadership at the Fed not to shoot straight. And part of that is the culture of trying to like obscure what they're doing because everyone's trying to make bets and Wall Street's trying to figure out which way interest rates are going to go. So they developed this whole culture of intentionally not being comprehensible. It's called Fed speak. But I think that has really bled over into a lack of transparency and honesty. And now Jay Powell is a very charming guy. Um, You know, there's a lot to recommend him. He talks about being transparent and honest, but I think too many of his comments have not shot straight with the American people about where we are now and, and the costs of getting out of it and the responsibility that the Fed does take in having pumped up these asset markets for 10 years. So, you know, he says he's being very transparent and that's a key part of it. But I talk in the book about how, you know, Powell will say things like we're not seeing elevated asset prices or asset bubbles. And it's just stunning to hear someone say that. So, um, you know, candor and honesty are a good thing.